Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another briefing on where we are on Brexit uh, as we approach yet another end game. And I'm joined by the one and only IFG team Brexit. So number 10 may be in chaos, but David Frost is back in Brussels and may just may have a deal to bring, bring back to the prime minister next week. We're recording this. You need to date stamp these things these days on the 17th of November at 1237. Uh, when David Frost does signal up the white smoke, the prime minister will have to make a very big call and possibly making that call while still holed up on his own in Downing Street, self-isolating. But if he wants to know what he should be thinking about, then he could do very well to listen to today's podcast. Uh, I'm Jill Rutter. I'm a senior fellow at IFG, and I'm joined by Maddie Timmont-Jack, leader of Team Brexit, and her loyal acolytes, Joe Marshall and Jess Sargent. So let's go get stuck in and let's start off with where we are on those negotiations. Maddie, so where are we in the negotiations? Well, as you've said, Jill, we really are entering the sort of end game. Um, I think sort of from my calculations yesterday, we're about six and a half weeks now until the end of the transition period. Um, and at this stage, we still don't know if there's going to be a deal with the EU. Um, you know, at the moment, Lord Frost um, is is um, in Brussels um, negotiating with with the EU team. Um, but but really, we know that there are sort of a few key issues that are still still need to be resolved. While I think for those for those people who've been following the Brexit process, particularly this year, um, we'll know that there's sort of obvious landing zones on some of them. So so these sort of issues um, involve the level playing field which includes issues like state aid, um, employment rights, workers' rights, uh, so the environment. And this is all about sort of how competitive the UK might be after it has left the single market and customs union, whether or not it can sort of undercut the EU. So the EU are concerned that if, if the UK doesn't um, continue to align with at least some EU rules in those areas, they'll be able to be more competitive on the doorstep. Um, one of the other issues that we're still waiting to see some sort of white smoke on is fish. Um, this has been one of the problems that sort of... Uh, always been there in Brexit, you know, taking back control of, of our waters was one of the key slogans during the Brexit campaign. Um, and sort of one of the problems is essentially the EU wants to ensure that EU fishers will continue to have access to UK waters from the end of the year, while while the UK um, want to ensure that they, they sort of have more um, they have more control over waters and, and sort of take back that control. Um, so, I mean, the third issue I think that still needs to be resolved um, is is around governance and really the sort of dispute resolution mechanism. So if there is a dispute in the agreement um, in the future, if one side um, sort of doesn't live up to some of the promises it, it signs up to, then how can the other side retaliate? And this, I think, has become even more of a problem um, following the UK government's decision to include provisions in the UK Internal Market Bill, which undermined the agreement they signed up to last year. So the EU sort of doesn't trust the UK essentially and wants to ensure that it will have ways to sort of retaliate if the UK does break any agreement in the future. So, so sort of those are the three big issues that I think we're still waiting to see some resolution on. Um, and ultimately, to, to get that resolution, we're going to have to see movement on both sides. So the UK is going to need to recognise sort of the concerns from the EU about, about the prospect of undercutting the EU in the future. Um, but also, I think, you know, those member states 
states who want to ensure that they have the same access to UK waters as they had um, sort of over the last 40 years, I think we'll also need to accept that that, that will have to change. Um, I think that where we're at is really coming down to whether or not there's political will on both sides to make those moves. Um I think, you know, we, we've talked about this quite a lot within the Brexit team um, and, you know, we've spoken about it with you, Jill, that the, the problem with the sort of deal that we're currently looking at is that if the Prime Minister does decide that actually making those concessions to the EU will be worth it to get a deal, um, because it is a much thinner deal, it will be a harder sell back back domestically, both to the British public, but also to some of his backbenchers. Um, so I think that really we're at the stage where we need to, we're waiting to see whether the Prime Minister sort of is willing to make that that move. So, Maddie, you said a much thinner deal, a much thinner deal than what? So a much thinner deal than the deal that we might have seen under Theresa May, who was really looking to more closely align with the EU to protect essentially those sort of supply trade chains and to protect um, trade with the EU, with the EU to try and ensure that businesses had greater access to the EU market. And, and obviously, we don't know how negotiations would have unfolded in, in another universe where Theresa May uh, remained uh, Prime Minister. But but we do know that was her aim and we likely would have ended up in a sort of closer relationship with, with, the, with the EU. I mean, Jill, you obviously re- recently wrote a, a piece sort of looking at who killed soft Brexit, um, but we are very much um, in, in a different world now where, where sort of soft Brexit is a thing of the past. So it's not a soft Brexit, but Maddie, one of the things that people keep on telling us is there's a deadline. First of all, I think David Frost set a deadline of the end of September and indeed lined up a new job as National Security Advisor, then a deadline. Boris Johnson set a deadline of the European Council in October. Uh, Michel Barnier said Halloween. Then we heard it could go one or two days beyond that, I think, from Stefan de Rink, his spokesman, talking at IFG. Uh, So we're now in 17th of November, as I mentioned. Is there actually a deadline for this thing? Well, I think, no, I mean, the deadlines are, are, are important. And, and you know, we have, as you say, we've missed quite a few of them. Um, the, the reason that, that deadlines have been set during this process is sort of there are two reasons. On the one hand, there's, there's sort of a process reason, because even once you've sort of agreed a deal, um, that both sides need to ratify that deal. So for the EU, that will involve, um, you know, a vote in the council, the European Parliament, and then depending on the scope of any deal, it could involve um, sort of national parliaments and member states having to scrutinise and vote on a deal. Um, Although, you know, there is a world in which you can still apply a deal, even if national parliaments haven't scrutinised it. And maybe, I mean, that might be something that we come on to later. But I will say that our colleague Georgina Wright has a great thread on that on Twitter, if you do want to look into the details of that. Um, On the UK side, it's not quite the same as last year, there won't be a meaningful vote in the same way. Um, But we do know that some legislation is likely needed to implement any deal um we sort of we're also looking at this and there'll be a sort of an explainer up it might already be up by the time um we we talk uh, we sort of publish this podcast but but there will be legislation that we needed to implement any deal and and although um it could be that the government already has some powers to do that um through uh through sort of powers that's already taken um, through other primary legislation, it looks like they're they're likely to actually try and pass a new bill through Parliament to ensure that they are able to implement all aspects of of a deal. Um, And that will take time. You know, 
legislation can be rushed through, but but you still need some time to, to debate and scrutinise that legislation. So that's one reason why why sort of deadlines have become quite important. It's ratification, but also, and I think we'll come on to this, the other reason why there has been sort of a desire on both sides to try and reach a deal as soon as possible is also to give businesses time to prepare once they know the outline of what the deal actually looks like. Um, and as I say, I think we'll come on to discuss some of that in a bit. So does this all have to be passed for a deal to come into effect? Because obviously we're facing that hard deadline of the end of December. Does all the legislation have to be passed and the European Parliament have to have done everything uh, for the deal to come into force on the 1st of January? Or is there a risk? uh, Will there be a gap, I suppose, is the question there. So on the EU side, I think once the council has has made a decision, has have approved a deal, then then they can agree to provisionally apply any agreement. Um, and I think that can happen even before the European Parliament vote. Although I think the sort of desire on the EU side is very much to ensure that the European Parliament does get a chance to vote on the deal. Obviously, it involves a risk if you do apply it before there has been a vote in the Parliament. There's a chance that they turn around and say, actually, no, we don't like this deal. I um, mean, then it would fall away anyway. Um, on on the UK side, yeah you do need to ensure that it does have effect in UK law um, because of the way that our sort of legal system is set up. Um, so, so the government will need to um, pass legislation that implements it. I mean, we, we're looking at the different ways they could do that. Um, but one way to sort of try and speed up the process would be to pass a bill that would give it sort of direct effect in UK law, which would be sort of relatively, it would be easier than just sort of um, to, than passing legislation, which then requires sort of more, um, more uh uh, sort of regulations being made later down the line. So so that would be one way to to sort of speed it up. But it's worth saying that, you know, we don't normally do that with international treaties. It is pretty unusual. I mean, the only treaties where we've given, which we've given direct effect have been EU treaties or the withdrawal agreement. So it will sort of be, I guess, somewhat ironic if um, because of the sort of lack of time, the UK government ends up having to give this treaty a sort of a similar status as as those EU treaties have have been in the past. Yeah, I think I can already feel temperatures rising among some of the Prime Minister's uh, more Eurosceptic backbenchers about the prospect that we have to give a treaty with the EU direct effect. Um, I'm going to turn now to Joe. Maddie mentioned that uh, that this is going to be sort of quite a thin deal, deal or no deal. So what changes whether we get a deal or not at the end of the year? So I think you're you're right, Jill, that, you know, obviously... Uh, for Johnson government sort of move towards a uh, sort of more distant uh, future relationship ambitions with the EU means that the differences between a deal and no deal are now narrower than they would have been under Theresa May. Um, and this doesn't mean that a deal doesn't mean anything, but it does mean that uh, you know, the outcomes are more similar. Um, and I think, you know, Ultimately, regardless of the outcome of negotiations, we know the UK is going to be leaving the single market and the customs union. And ultimately, this means that the UK and the EU will apply different rules on goods crossing the border. There'll be different regulatory regimes in areas like chemicals or product standards, food safety, competition, loads of different areas like that. Um, And effectively, this just means it's going to be more costly and more difficult to trade between the UK and the EU compared to what it is now. Um, And we know a lot of those changes are coming into effect, deal or no deal. So, uh, you know, businesses will need to prepare 
to comply with new customs regulations, uh, customs formalities or regulatory regimes, deal or no deal, the government will need to be ready to apply those new rules uh, and enforce them, deal or no deal. So in terms of preparations, the difference between deal or no deal is, is quite narrow and doesn't really make a huge difference. However, uh, you know, getting a deal does still matter and you know, there are some big differences that getting a deal would make. In some areas, it could help streamline some of the new red tape that you know, we expect to come deal or no deal. So it could mean that customs checks can be streamlined a bit or that uh, you know, physical inspections on goods um, only apply to a smaller percentage of goods compared to a no deal outcome. It could also you know, mean that you know, the UK and the EU can... Um, you know, agree to recognise each other's sort of product standards assessments as well, which makes it a bit easier for businesses to prepare. There are also some other big areas where getting a deal makes a big difference. Uh, one of these is around tariffs, uh, which are taxes paid on goods at the border. And uh, you know, tariffs uh, will apply very broadly in a no-deal outcome, but could be avoided if we get a deal. And this is particularly important for certain sectors where, uh, for instance, the tariffs are very high or where there are complex supply chains in the EU where tariffs could be applied to lots of components or where the UK exports a lot of goods and could become uncompetitive if tariffs are applied. And ultimately, you know, these tariff costs could be passed on to consumers and so consumers will you know, pay the price if tariffs are imposed. So, um, Joe, Joe, I just want to ask you a question yesterday. We saw a letter that Andy Street, the mayor of the West, uh, the mayor of uh, the West Midlands Combined Authority, I think it's the official title, and lots of business there. Obviously, that's a big hub for the car industry. And I think they wrote to Liz Truss and David Frost to say they were becoming very concerned that actually, even if the UK appears to have what might be a zero tariff, zero quota deal with the EU, that basically the car industry still wouldn't be able to take advantage of that. Can you just explain to us what uh, what their concern was? Yes. Well, I, I mean, basically, even if you get a zero tariff free trade agreement, uh, those sort of benefiting from those zero tariffs or reduced tariffs is not unconditional. Um, there are lots of complicated rules which apply called rules of origin, which are about showing where your goods come from um, in order to benefit from those uh, preferential tariff rates. And uh, those rules are very, very complex, but effectively mean there's sort of a threshold of, of where you know, components have to come from, particularly in a car, for instance, um, in order to benefit from those preferential rates. And for the automotive sector, which could be very affected by tariffs, the concern is basically that they already have their models in production and they already have their complex supply chains that go into the EU, but also all around the world. And uh, if there are new rules of origin in a deal, um, they can't guarantee that they're going to be able to comply with those new rules of origin particularly by the 1st of January, because there isn't time to adapt their supply chains, there isn't time to change you know, the models they're producing. And in many cases, you know, there isn't even time just to produce the evidence to show where their goods come from, even if they even if they already comply with what those rules of origin are going to be. So I think this is one of those areas where, um, you know, in theory, a deal is a good thing and, you know, allows you to have sort of tariff-free access, but the sort of new red tape in practice to access those benefits makes it very difficult for some businesses and means that some might not be able to benefit 
at least initially or potentially at all. So, Joe, is it only business that's going to make notice a difference uh, on the 1st of January, deal or no deal? What does it mean for for people if we're ever allowed to travel again or want to move over to the EU or indeed take our pet to the EU on holiday? Uh, yes, individuals will see a lot of differences to uh, deal or no deal. You know, the UK is going to be leaving uh, you know, freedom of movement will end. And so uh, there are a lot of changes coming. And these are changes that UK citizens, you know, in going to the EU will notice, but also EU citizens coming to the UK. And basically, there are big changes coming, you know, if you are traveling, working, living or studying in the EU. So as you say, you know, one thing that people might notice is the fact you'll need six months on your passport when traveling to the EU. Uh, Also, that, you know, you will only be able to visit the Schengen area without a visa for a 90 days period for 90 days in any 180 day period um you know if you're traveling to the eu your european health insurance card which currently allows sort of access to state uh, health care free of charge won't be valid and so you might need to get uh, health insurance uh, which you know, can cost quite a lot of money or be hard to get particularly if you've got pre-existing conditions you know likewise driving you might need an international driving permit you might need to speak to your insurer if you're taking your car to the eu to check if you need any additional paperwork and as you said, Jill, you know, traveling with pets could be a bit harder. Uh, you know, EU pet passports won't be valid anymore. And, you know, exactly what requirements will be for traveling to the EU with your pet depends on some decisions that EU's yet to take. But it will involve things like going to a vet before you travel, potentially needing to get blood tests in extreme circumstances that could take months to do. And likewise, you know, working in the EU as well, you know, Depending on the kind of work you're doing or the country you're going to, you might need a work visa. You might have new rules on professional qualifications uh, that you need to meet all the kind of activities you can undertake. And you know, if you want to move to the EU to work or study, you're going to have to comply with the new visa, whatever immigration requirements exist in individual member states. And uh, you're going to have to uh, you know, potentially pay higher student fees as well. And on, you know, for EU citizens coming to the UK, uh, you know, if those who are already here will need to make sure they're registered for the Settled Status Scheme to ensure they continue to live and work in the UK as they do now. But those who arrive in the UK from the start of next year will have to comply with the UK's new immigration system, which basically means it's going to be a lot harder to come and work in the UK, more onerous and more expensive. So a lot of individuals will face a lot of changes. I think it's worth saying, though, that a lot of these changes individuals face, unlike checks at the border, which will come in on day you know, at a particular time, um, individuals will probably notice these changes as and when they come to move or travel to the EU. And particularly at the moment, because of COVID, fewer people are doing that. So people might not notice these immediately on day one, but they will notice them next year, I'm sure. OK, right. Well, that's uh, that's quite a good summary of where we are on Deal or No Deal. Um, but I'm going to now move over to uh, to Jess. Jess, um, you've been looking a lot in depth at the operation of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which of course is all hunky-dory because that was signed up to uh, in the withdrawal agreement. So at least there's some degree of certainty on that. Um, Do we know all the fine print now of how the Northern Ireland Protocol will operate next year? We don't. Um, There are still a lot of practical details that need to be sorted out. 
Um, and most of those will be determined in uh, the Joint Committee, which is the UK-EU body, which is responsible for overseeing the withdrawal agreement. So there's still some pretty big decisions to be made there. Perhaps the most important one um, is the criteria uh, according to which goods are judged not at risk of entering the EU. Um, so most of the border arrangements in the Irish Sea will look pretty similar um, to the GBEU border. So all of the paperwork and checks that Joe's just set out uh, will apply for goods moving from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. But the big difference here is on tariffs. Uh, so the protocol says that any good uh, moving from Great Britain to Northern Ireland that is then at risk of moving into the EU, most likely through the Republic of Ireland, will be subject to tariffs. But goods that are expected to stay in Northern Ireland um, won't be subject to tariffs. Um, and the Joint Committee is responsible for de determining the criteria according to which um, those two groups of goods are distinguished and it's decided uh, which tariff should be paid. Um, now, that decision and those criteria are really quite important because it could determine whether it's only a very small percentage of goods that are de deemed at risk or whether actually quite a lot of goods could be considered um, at risk. So it will have huge implications for the UK internal market. Um, and we're still waiting for the Joint Committee to come up with a decision on that. Now, this has also been uh, pretty controversial this is one of the areas not where the UK has already taken powers to decide it on its own through the UK Internal Market Bill, but it's it's proposing that in the future it might do. Um, so this is a yeah one big decision that's still to be made. There's also other big decisions for the Joint Committee, um, including on whether there might be any exceptions or derogations, particularly for agricultural products. Um, so those are some of the most extensive checks. There'll need to be physical inspections of food of animal origins, and this poses a real really big problem uh, for supermarkets um, in the UK um, because there'll be big kind of mixed loads of containers containing lots of different types of animal products and there'll be a huge cost and potential um, time implication of having to ensure checks on all those goods. Um, now the First Minister and Deputy First Minister this week asked for special exceptions for these products um, because it's pretty clear that it's likely that those will be consumed in Northern Ireland. They're not going to be um, at risk and subject to tariffs or or other kinds of checks. Um, and if there is to be an agreement on that, if there are to be some mitigations, that could also be agreed from the Joint Committee. But it's not clear that that, that will happen. So there are still some really big questions um, that need to be decided about exactly how this border will operate come 1st of January. Yes, I think you're in a bit of a time warp because I think that letter might have been last week, but, uh, but uh, no matter. <laughs> Do we think that these discussions in the Joint Committee are going going well because there was sort of a bit of a sense that when the UK introduced the internal market bill it was throwing throwing toys out of the pram and uh, implying that it wasn't going very well in the joint committee um, have those discussions been proceeding you know well as far as we can tell yeah, I mean, there is a big kind of qualification, as you say, that as far as we can tell, we, we don't really know exactly what's going in on in the Joint Committee. But it did look like those decisions were going, um, those those negotiations and those discussions were going quite quite well until, as you say, the UK government introduced the UK Internal Market Bill. And that obviously has kind of big implications for trust. I mean, one of the big problems um, in determining that at-risk criteria is what future relationship um, we get and whether or not a zero-tariff-free uh, trade agreement is agreed will have a big bearing on how important that decision is. So I think the Joint Committee has found it quite difficult to try and determine these criteria when we don't know... Um, 
what what tariff-free access uh, goods from the UK and from GB might be entitled to. Um, so essentially, if all goods from the UK um, can enter the EU tariff-free anyway, then it doesn't really matter too much which goods are considered at risk because both will be entitled for tariff-free access. So I think, although they are, in theory, very separate um, negotiations, the Joint Committee negotiations and the future relationship negotiations, they do have a bearing on each other. And I think we've seen, as time has come on, they've become more into Twined. Okay, that's uh, no, it's really good on the sort of Rubik's cube that we're trying to assemble into shape in double quick time. We need to call on one of those people who can do it all in two microseconds. Joe, I just want to come back to you. Um, we've talked about deal, no deal, negotiations. There are also some outstanding decisions, aren't there? Um, unilateral decisions on data adequacy and also on. Uh, financial services equivalents. Has there been any progress on either of them? I mean, you're absolutely right, Jill. There are, I think, you know, one of the big sort of differences between deal and no deal that we did touch on earlier is this idea that you know, basically a deal creates a more positive political environment between the UK and the EU. And that will have an impact on some of these key EU decisions, which, as you say, are technically not part of the future relationship negotiations, but are you know, inevitably connected and sort of influenced by what happens there. And as you say, there are sort of big ones are data adequacy and financial services equivalents. And data adequacy will affect how easy it is to transfer data from the EU to the UK. And financial services equivalents will affect sort of level of market access for UK financial services firms into the EU markets. Although, uh, will be more restrictive than it is now in any case. Um, we haven't seen, uh, you know, huge progress on these, and we've seen some sort of negative mood music about uh, whether or not these will actually be granted in time for the end of the year. Um, we'll have to see what comes out of negotiations. Uh, you know, if there is positive steps in negotiations and a deal is agreed, we are far more likely to get positive decisions uh, on these two issues than if no deal is reached. Um, and we know that, you know, the UK, for its part, is going to let uh, data transfers from the UK to the EU take place. And it has already sort of set out its own proposals for sort of equivalence regimes for the City of London for EU financial services firms. Um, part of you know, the uncertainty is the fact that, you know, all of these decisions are tied up in negotiations and the politics of negotiations. And so, um, you know, we might see some clarity in future. But there are also some more practical hurdles for the fact that, you know, in order to grant these decisions, the EU has to go through some own internal processes, basically set a of setting out whether or not it believes the UK's sort of regulatory regimes in these areas are sufficient. And there are some concerns in things like uh, data adequacy, for instance, about whether or not things like the UK Investigatory Powers Act, which allows sort of security services access to some data, uh, could potentially infringe some of the data protection requirements that the EU looks for. And also, you know, about how the UK shares data with some of its intelligence and security partners around the world, which also sort of affect these decisions. Uh, so it's a mix of sort of politics and sort of practicality, which is standing in the way at the moment. But I think, you know, the hope is that decisions will be made. But it's worth saying, you know, 
some of these decisions are being made very late in the day and many businesses and the government are having to sort of make contingency plans on the basis that these won't be available. So in data, that means having to amend contracts. It means having to set up alternative ways of sending data from the EU to the UK. And in financial services equivalents, it means you know, many firms won't be able to continue providing services like they do at the moment and are having to sort of set up new operations in the EU or organise their work in different ways to try and continue servicing their clients. But, and Joe, uh, when we were looking at sort of no deal last year, one of the sort of worries was that planes might stop flying if there was no agreement on aviation, that trucks might not be able to drive over into the EU because there were so few truck permits available to third countries. Do we know what happens if we don't get an agreement to those? I think at one stage the Prime Minister floated the idea that we could move to WTO terms, but WTO terms plus maybe with some mini deals. Do we think that's what would happen? Yes, I mean, this again is another area where uh, the relationship between the UK and the EU after you know, negotiations will be really important. Um, some of these areas could be covered off in negotiations. And, you know, if we get a deal, we would, you know, both sides are sort of hoping to agree terms that cover road haulage and that cover aviation in some respect. So there is sort of a hope that, you know, many issues will be covered off in negotiations. If they are not included in a negotiated deal or there is a no deal outcome, then the fallback situation for both road haulage and for aviation um, is quite limited. Uh, basically, in road haulage, relying on quite an outdated permit system, which is very costly. As you say, you have only about enough permits for a quarter of the road haulage firms that operate at the moment. Um, and on aviation, again, sort of falling back to... Uh, many agreements that predate when we joined the EU, which aren't very well suited for sort of the aviation market as it is now. In both those cases, in a no-deal outcome, they are sort of contenders for a unilateral action being taken by both sides to try and maintain uh, some connectivity. And we saw ahead of the no-deal last year that both sides planned to allow some sort of road haulage operations to continue and flights to continue flying between the UK and the EU, at least temporarily. Um, and you know, we expect that there will be similar measures again this year. But you know, it's worth noting that in both cases, you know, the rules are going to be more restrictive, deal or no deal. And in a no deal outcome, could be very restrictive if we don't get some of those unilateral measures but uh, you know, it sort of will depend on the, you know, the political setting at the end of the year. Uh, but it is in both sides' interest to have something in place uh, to limit the most sort of extreme disruption. But whether or not we'll get something that's sort of longstanding and provides sort of a basis for your future connectivity and road haulage or aviation, uh, you know, is more likely to come out of a deal than a no-deal scenario. Okay, Maddie, Joe was just setting out that you know, in many respects deal, the sort of deal that the Prime Minister now envisages, and no deal don't look very different by the end of the year. So that should have made the task of getting ready, apart from that rather annoying pandemic that got in the way, uh, much easier than it might have been if deal and no deal really had a big gulf between them. So what's your view on how ready government and business are now? 
Well, I mean, I think you're right that the, the fact that no deal and deal is, is sort of a lot closer together has to an extent made it easier. You know, in sort of research we've, we've been doing over the last few years, we, we saw that under Theresa May, one of the big challenges for the civil service was the fact that they were sort of having to prepare on very different tracks. So, so both for a deal in terms of withdrawal agreement deal, but also for a closer relationship with the EU, and then also for no deal. Whereas this year, actually, the sort of basic plans the civil service are working off were, were sort of closer together, um, which I think has made has made it easier to an extent, although you do mention COVID, which maybe we'll come back to in a moment. Um, but I think so, so sort of from, from what we've looked at, and we did recently publish a paper sort of trying to assess how ready the UK is. And we can see that in sort of some areas, the government is largely ready. You know, it has done a huge amount of work to prepare for taking on some of those functions that were exercised at the EU level. So some regulators have sort of got themselves ready to the Competition and Markets Authority, for example, the the, um, the FCA um, and sort of others have, have sort of prepared to, to take on sort of regulating some of those areas that previously were, were regulated at the EU level. We're also finally starting to see some of those Brexit bills becoming law. So last year, last year, sorry, last week, um, it feels like a long time ago, um, the agriculture and immigration bills both sort of became law. So we've sort of seen some progress on the parliamentary side, I think, after sort of initial delays were introduced by the pandemic. Um, but having said that, you know, there are areas where, where there is still quite a lot of concern about whether or not we'll be ready. And, you know, Jess has already set set out the fact that there are some delays in terms of decision making around the Northern Ireland Protocol. That makes it much harder to, to ensure what, what plans might be put in place. And I think Jess might come in um, in a bit talking about some of the sort of practical preparations on the ground there and delays delays in that sense. But I think one of the biggest areas where I think, you know, we've seen the government is concerned about preparation is around um, sort of implementing the GBEU border because you know last year um civil service was preparing for the fact that we might leave the eu without a deal and suddenly all those checks and processes that joe's already set out would apply to goods uh, moving between the the uk and the eu but but in that scenario it was very much sort of contingency planning there was still an ambition for reaching a deal with the eu which last year involved a transition period which meant nothing would change and so actually sort of you were really looking at you know minimum viable products essentially to, to try and keep things moving to the extent they could across the border whereas this year we're really looking at a sort of sustainable um sort of border operating model that, that will actually work for the future. I know I think the government's got its ambition to, to sort of have the best border in the world by 2025. And and at the end of the year, they're sort of having to sort of start that process, as it were. Um, and I think that that's, that's going to be one of the, the biggest challenges. Now, what, what the government has done in terms of the border... It has bought itself some more time in terms of sort of the import processes it needs to put in place. So they are phasing in um, those import processes um, up to July next year. So some of the new infrastructure, so the border um, border control posts, for example, um, those won't need to be in place until later on next year. So it means that there's sort of a bit more a bit more time to, to put some of that in in practice. And one of the sort of big new systems, um, the Goods Vehicle Management System, GVMS, it's very catchy, um, that will be used um, for the GBNI border, but also for sort of some transit goods. You know, it, it sort of has a more limited rollout at the end of the year. Um, they'll need it sort of more sort of wholesale from, from next July. But again, there's sort of a bit more space um, to try and sort of uh, address any teething problems that we might see um, in, in January. Although, I mean, it is worth saying that they do need it for some goods in January. And, and I think there is a bit of concern from industry that actually the fact that it's not going to be rolled out until middle of December means that there are sort of risks that, that actually 
they won't be able to join up their own software with some of the the new systems the government is is putting in place. Um, but I think that, that the real challenge, and this is something that we've heard from government ministers, you know, both Michael Gove said on the floor of the House, but also Lord Agnew told uh, the Treasury Select Committee that um, the biggest challenge is trader readiness. And actually, even if the government sort of phases in some of those import checks, we know that the EU is planning on sort of implementing full controls from the beginning of next year. I mean, there has been some discussion about the fact that some member states might um, try and sort of take a slightly more light touch approach to uh, compliance. But at the same time, those traders that are going to be crossing the border um, or should taking goods across the border from um, January the 1st will need to be ready to comply with those those export controls and, and the import controls on the EU side. And that's one of the biggest problems. Um, I think the other sort of issue that we've heard talk of quite a lot is about um, customs agents. So, you know, Joe has set out um, the sorts of forms um, and requirements that, that businesses are going to need to be ready to comply with. Um, from the beginning of next year and and actually sort of for a lot of businesses they will be hiring customs agents to, to fill out those forms for them because they're experts in those processes and it sort of manages helps sort of streamline the whole process for them but we know that there's there's a severe lack of uh, capacity in that sector and there's a real real concern that actually that will end up sort of hindering traders um in terms of in, in being able to sort of trade in goods and, and actually comply with the new um requirements i mean it's worth saying that you know, I've sort of painted quite a gloomy picture, I think, in terms of trader readiness. Um, but but it, it does depend on what you're looking at. Um, so from the research that we've done, we've seen that actually a lot of services firms are a lot more ready for the changes coming at the end of the year. Um, that's partly just because, you know, traditionally free trade agreements don't offer that much on services. So I think sort of a much earlier on in the process, the writing was on the wall. They knew the change was coming. Um, so actually they they were sort of better, better placed to prepare for that. Also, I mean, some of those sectors are also highly regulated so actually they needed to um to comply with or sort of prepare for the incoming changes to ensure that they're complying with new rules um i think that the other the other sort of difference that we've seen as well is, is the difference between sort of those big um organizations and much smaller businesses so you know big corporations who are used to conducting trade with the rest of the world already have some capacity in that in that area so they can just sort of build up and apply it to eu trade um they've also just got sort of more more bodies essentially to to ensure that preparations are are taking place whereas for those smaller businesses um they don't have the same capacity and then and this is when i think the impact of the the coronavirus pandemics really has been felt is that you know they, they haven't had the capacity but also a lot of their cash flow has been run down we know that staff has been put on furlough um, and for some of them you know they're really focused particularly with this sort of you know most of the UK now being under lockdown they're really focusing on trying to survive to the end of the year and they just don't have the bandwidth to think about what what's happening in January so so I do think that you know we are looking at quite a mixed picture readiness the government maybe is sort of slightly better prepared and it's sort of definitely better prepared than it was for no deal last year I think for businesses it's a much more of a mixed picture and you know some businesses are even less prepared for for sort of any changes at the end of the year than they were for no deal last year others just haven't been able to progress their preparations at all and Jess is it the same picture in Northern Ireland Um, It's potentially uh, even worse in in some areas. Um, So Maddie mentioned that the government's plan was to phase in checks, um, import checks um, in the GB border. But it can't do that um, for the Northern Ireland Protocol because it will be responsible for applying EU law on the 1st of January. So that means that these systems need to be up and ready 
by the end of the year um, in order to facilitate trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Um, now, like um, on the GB border, one of the, the big issues is around um, infrastructure for agricultural checks. Um, uh, the Northern Ireland executive is responsible for ensuring that that's in place. And actually, we haven't seen that start yet. Contracts have been awarded, but there's no boots on the ground. And the permanent secretary of the Department of Agriculture there has been crystal clear that that will not be ready um, for the end of the year. Um, so there's potentially going to be some real problems and potential trade disruption. What happens if that's not ready at the end of the year? The UK is committed uh, legally in the withdrawal agreement that it would be ready and it's not ready. So, so what happens next? Well, so it's going to be UK officials um, and Northern Ireland executive officials that be, will be responsible for um, applying that law and administering those processes. And fundamentally, they're going to have to make a trade-off between compliance, um, applying EU law as they are required to do under the protocol, and potentially making trade disruption worse, or prioritising flow, kind of waving things through, um, potentially against their international obligations just to kind of keep things moving. Um, so really, what we argue in our report. Uh, where we've looked at this is that uh, the EU is going to have to be a little bit flexible um, in terms of, of compliance, or at least we argue that, that it should be, um, because inevitably neither of those are good options. Uh, and if the, if the UK doesn't apply EU law as it should, um, then that's still subject to European Commission oversight, which means that the EU could launch infringement proceedings and it could um, the UK could end up with a fine at the European Court of Justice. So there are some quite serious legal implications here. Yeah, we argue in our report that the EU should be pragmatic. It should accept that it looks like um, these arrangements are certainly not going to be ready. Um, and it's ultimately Northern Ireland economy that will suffer. Although you could blame the UK for not being ready, the consequences will be felt most acutely in um, Northern Ireland and the EU, um, who considers itself a protector of the Good Friday Agreement, um, should consider whether that's something that, that it wants to do. But fundamentally, whether the EU is willing to be flexible is going to very much depend on the political situation. And if we have a scenario where there's no deal, um, where the UK government presses ahead um, with these powers to break international law that it's taking in the UK Internal Market Bill, it's going to be a lot more difficult to see that the EU is going to be willing for that flexibility. And so we're either going to end up um, with huge trade disruption or potential legal consequences for the UK or most likely both. Excellent. And what's the, what's the government doing to support businesses in Northern Ireland to get ready? Yes, so Maddie mentioned that uh, trader, um, the customs agents was a big problem um, here in for the uh, people trading across the Irish Sea or businesses trading across the Irish Sea. The government has set up a trader support service um, which will help um, businesses uh, fill out the new customs forms um, and potentially do some of that paperwork for them. And this is to address this concern that businesses won't be ready. Um, but the trader support service itself has a massive task in scaling up capacity and hiring customs agents or customs consultants for itself, um, for setting up IT systems and such like to manage this huge, huge volume of applications. Um, so I don't think we can say for certain that that, that will make the whole process frictionless. So uh, the Northern um, the uh, NAO uh, document recently um, said at the end of October, it was only around a quarter of businesses that, that trade across the Irish Sea that had actually signed up. So there's still a big drive um, to make sure that all those businesses are aware of this service and are um, signed up. Um, but even so, there are concerns that the Trader Support Service won't deal with um, some of the uh, 
paperwork that will need to be complied with on the agri-food side. So it won't do everything. I mean, certainly I think this is a very helpful scheme um, and it will do a lot to help business readiness, but it's certainly not a kind of magic fix-all solution. I think trader readiness is still going to be a big problem um, going from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. And the government also said it would reimburse tariffs that any Northern Ireland business ended up having to pay because a good was deemed at risk. Uh, have we? Do we know how that's going to work yet? Uh, this is one of the things where we've seen very little detail, and I think that's part partially because the UK government is waiting for the decision on what um, at risk means and what goods might be captured. Um, on that before it can uh, design this scheme. But but time is, is very much running out. Um, the, you know, the businesses will potentially be having to pay tariffs um, at the end of the year and they'll want to know for their own cash flow purposes whether they'll be able to claim that back, how exactly that will work, whether it, they'll have to, how long they'll have to wait to get that money back or whether tariffs will be waived and paid in the first instance by the UK government. Um, so yes, that is one of the big unanswered questions that will have real implications for the viability of certain uh, businesses trading uh, between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And just just one one last question on this. Um, you mentioned the Internal Market Bill, which I think is still in Parliament. Uh, we know that the new president-elect is not the world's biggest fan of the Internal Market Bill. Uh, will that be abandoned if the government gets a trade deal with the EU and therefore doesn't need these and the right sets of agreements in the Joint Committee? Or will that bill go ahead and find its way into the statute book in any case? Yes. So um, as we we know, the House of Lords have already removed uh, some of the offending provisions um, from the UK Internal Market Bill. Um, That will then go back to the House of Commons, um, where MPs will vote on it. The UK government has said that it will stand firm. It will keep those those clauses as part of the bill. Um, But as you say, I think if there is a trade agreement, then it's likely that the UK government will feel that those provisions are no longer necessary. So there's one provision on state aid that if there is an agreement on state aid through the future relationship, uh, that provision should be necessary. And the other thing uh, that the other power the bill directly takes is to waive a specific bit of paperwork, um, which could be agreed through the joint committee. Um, So there are definitely ways um, in which those clauses could be removed. Um, And I do think that if there is a deal, um, there will be a sense of kind of goodwill Um, That will mean that the UK government will feel able to do that. But there's a sort of kind of chicken and egg scenario here, a kind of who moves first, um, in that the EU has said that a a trade deal won't be possible while those provisions are still um, part of the bill. Um, And the UK said it won't remove those provisions until there is agreement on the issues that that could be solved through the future relationship. Um, So there is a kind of a sequencing issue here um, that I hope could be resolved. But there is, I guess, a danger um, that if both sides continue to to stand firm, um, that we might end up in a kind of no deal scenario by accident almost. Right. Sometimes you get the sense that we spent the last four and a half years watching the biggest ever game of chicken uh, on earth. But anyway, uh, I'm going to sort of move towards the end now and just ask you all to think beyond your uh, socially distanced Christmas and your solo turkeys, which you're still eating on January the 1st. And just say, if you can all think yourself that you are now Michael Gove or Arlene Foster and Michelle O'Neill or indeed the Prime Minister. Um, What's keeping you awake at night? Or if you want to ask the question a different way, 
if you were the BBC or ITV Channel 4 scheduler, where would you be sending your film crews on the 1st of January? Where are we going to, where's it going to be most problematic? Where are the pinch points? Um, Joe, why don't you pitch at that first? I think I'll just pick up on that point about where to send the cameras, because I think there is a sort of anticipation that there will be disruption at the border. And we could see, you know, the government's reasonable worst case scenario was potentially 7,000 lobbies queuing to get to the border in Kent. And I think, you know, it is likely there will be some disruption at the board, GB border in January because, you know, lorries might not be ready for those new EU checks. And even though the government's putting in place measures to try and keep unprepared lorries away from the border, there might still be disruption. But I think it's worth saying, you know, that the end of a transition period falls on a Friday after Christmas as a period when it's you know, traditionally a very quiet time for trade. And so it might be that we don't actually see those big queues or big problems immediately, but we might see them a few days later. So that will be an interesting thing to look out for. But I think the thing that probably keeps me uh, keeps me awake is probably a little bit too strong, but is sort of at the front of my mind, is the fact that, you know, even though there are big changes coming on the 1st of January, you know, EU customs checks, lots of regulatory changes, particularly on the EU side, a lot of other Brexit changes have been delayed or deferred and will only come into effect later next year or even beyond. You know, the UK is going to recognise some EU standards for a period or there are delays before the UK will set up its own independent regulatory regimes or, you know, EU uh, UK checks on imports like Manny was talking about. So I think, I think the big challenge for the government will be after it potentially gets a deal, after the 1st of January, to keep hammering home that message that you need to continue preparing. And it's not a very simple message because it's very complicated. It depends on the sector you're in, what business you're doing, what preparations you've already done. So I think you know, there's still a lot to do next year. And the 1st of January is definitely not the end of Brexit, even if it's uh, maybe the beginning of the end. So, Joe, I just wanted to ask you one more question about where exactly the border is. We heard quite a lot when Michael Gove gave his statement to Parliament, I think, last month about so-called Kent access permits. Does that mean I send my camera crew to Dover, Folkestone, or do I send them to, you know, the M2 or one of those roads that goes into Kent? Where are people going to be turned away? It is a very good question. I think, you know, the UK government's preparations for the GBE border are focused both on implementing those new checks, i.e. paperwork checks, checks, customs declarations, checks on agri-food goods, but also very much on managing disruption that is expected as traders adapt to those new rules and as new systems and infrastructure sort of bed in. And a big part of that is this new check and HGV service, which is basically a checklist online that lorry drivers will have to fill in to show that they've got all the customs documents they need and will be able to cross the border. And uh, if they haven't filled that in and they try and get into Kent, where the key uh, ports are and where most disruption is likely, they will be fined and turned away. Uh, and there are some concerns that, you know, the Check and HDV service is very new. It's not been fully tested or rolled out yet and need to make sure that, you know, hauliers are ready to use it. And not just your know, British lorry drivers, but actually, you know, 80 or 85% of the haulage market between BGB and the EU is EU drivers. So you need to make sure EU drivers are ready to use it as well. So, uh, you know, a lot of that is about trying to keep disruption away from the border, keep the border flowing. So there is a bit of a border going into Kent. uh, And hopefully, you know, people will comply with that 
uh, those sort of checklists and will be ready to go. But initially, you know, people might be filling in that form saying they've got all the right documentation when actually they haven't. It's not formally linked to the French Customs Authority, so we won't know know, whether or not the French will accept those documents that people say they've got. Uh, And ultimately, you know, there's very little time for people to get used to use that system. So, uh, you know, proper border checks, you know, at the actual border, but, you know, there is this sort of new complication that you will need additional paperwork to go into Kent alongside everything else you'll need to get past the proper GBEU border. Okay, Jess, where where might we first see sort of manifestations of uh, friction uh, in the not quite a border, if we're to believe, the Northern Ireland office in the Irish Sea? Where would you be looking for pinch points? Um, I think I'd have to send my camera crews to uh, uh, local Sainsbury's in Belfast um, or somewhere similar, um, because I do think the protocol will have implications for um, for supermarkets, for food availability and choice. Um, whether that's a result um, uh, of immediate disruption, just because the arrangements um, at the at the border aren't ready, or whether that's more long term changes that are caused by the fact that some products just won't become viable anymore because the costs of complying with the paperwork um, and uh, conducting those checks um, mean that the product just isn't worth supplying the Northern Ireland market. Um, so I think it will take a while for us to see the full implications of this, um, but I do think it's it's somewhere. That something that will be very visible um, to the people in Northern Ireland. And that's why I think both the UK and the EU should take this issue very seriously and where there are solutions, try to find them. Uh, Because fundamentally, in four years' time, um, or maybe just a a little bit longer, uh, the Northern Ireland Assembly will have the opportunity to vote on whether to continue uh, certain elements of the protocol. And it's in um, in neither's interest, or certainly not the EU's interest, um, for the Northern Ireland Assembly to vote against it um, and potentially reopen the whole issue. Um, so I think it's something that both sides should look very seriously at um, and should be continually monitored. Um, I think even if uh, there are no mitigations or derogations agreed before the 1st of January, the issue shouldn't be closed. Um, I think we should continue to see how the protocol is operating and where there might be opportunities uh, to make it uh, work better for the people and the economy of Northern Ireland. And finally, Maddie, both people have, uh, both Jess and uh, Joe, have refused so far to be uh, Michael Gove. I'm going to force you to inhabit your inner Gove, or maybe you are Allegra Stratton facing her first on the record Downing Street press briefing. What are you most concerned to watch out for right at the start of the year? Well, I mean, I don't know if I'm necessarily going to say right at the start, but one of the things that we haven't really mentioned at all so far in this podcast recording is coronavirus. And I think that that's, if I was Michael Gove right now, that would be the thing that I'd be quite concerned about come January, is is how the government manages its resources to handle both sort of, you know, ending the transition period, possible disruption in Kent, businesses not knowing what they need to do alongside a global pandemic. And, you know, there's obviously been more positive news um, around coronavirus recently that seems like there there could be more than one vaccine that could be ready to be rolled out sort of possibly before Christmas or at least in January. But that's going to be a huge logistical challenge. We know the government still needs to try and sort out its its test and trace processes. And then, as I say, they're, they're also going to have to be dealing with the fallout from 
on sort of implications of um, of the end of the transition period. And, and I think that that is the thing that I would be quite concerned about is where do I deploy my resources? What happens if vital staff that I need at the border, you know, have to self-isolate um, or they get ill? Where, where, how do these things interact? Where, where does coronavirus make my job in preparing for the end of the year more difficult? Where might it make it easier? Um, you know, we've already, I think recently there have been reports about sort of um, delays at the ports. I think Felix Stowe, there's been a lot of discussion about delays there because of sort of stockpiling ahead of the end of the year, but also coronavirus and, and sort of the disruption that coronavirus has caused to the supply chain. So I think that would be sort of my concern if I'm thinking how does how do I sort of coordinate government response to it and and while that might not be sort of obvious manifestations day one in January I do think it's something that the government is going to have to get to grips with. So Maddie you've just been talking a bit about how Covid might impact those Brexit preparations but I just wondered whether we were absolutely confident that Brexit wouldn't affect the way in which we manage the pandemic and in particular last year when we were talking about no deal there was quite a lot of concern I think about access to medical supplies and things like that. Are we confident that Brexit won't impact our ability to handle the pandemic? I mean, I think that's a really, really good question. And and as you rightly say, you know, last year, one of the big concerns um, was not just getting food into the country in the event of no deal, but medicines. And and we know that the pandemic has meant that some of those supply, the sort of um, stockpiles that were built up in some areas have been depleted. And medicines and sort of medical equipment is definitely one of those areas. Now, you know, the government has got sort of planning plans in place to try and ensure that it can get medical supplies into the country. So they've got this sort of um, procurement uh, framework for sort of freight procurement um, that DFT set up last year after its sort of disaster earlier in the year around sort of trying to sort of procure a company that had no ferries to, to be to be able to ferry medicine into the country. But they sort of got this framework in place. I think they're relatively confident that they will ensure that that medical equipment and medicines will be able to continue to get into the country from the end of the year. But I, I definitely think it is it is worth flagging that is that that is one of the sort of areas where any sort of disruption to supply could have a knock on impact. Now, obviously, that is going to be at the top of the government sort of concern list. Um, and as I say, I think they have got those plans plans ready. Um, but but I, but I, I definitely agree that you sort of can't can't say sort of t- when you're looking at the interaction between the two, there's clearly going to be an impact both ways. Um, and, and I think that, that that should be and will be one of the government's concerns. So I think we're going to draw a close to it there. Thanks very much to Maddie, Joe and Jess for taking us through the sort of immediate implications of deal or no deal and what's coming up in the next six and a half weeks. So we've talked a lot about trade and what might happen, border disruption. We haven't talked at all about security cooperation, but that's another vitally important strand of the Brexit talks that are going on. If you want to know more about that, I can't do better than to recommend an earlier IFG Live event where we talked about uh, security cooperation and got perspectives from Northern Ireland, from the security services, former EU security commissioner, and from our French counterparts who thought actually security should be decoupled from the trade deal because it was so important to both sides. So do give that a listen. And there's lots more detail as well on Brexit preparedness in earlier IFG lives. And watch out for upcoming events, including something on the interactions between Brexit and COVID. So keep your eyes uh, peeled for those events coming up. 
And meanwhile, thank you. And we might be back soon if there's a deal. Thank you for listening. And we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Thank you.